Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 17. And we're going to be continuing uh, in our series through the Gospel of Luke. And I don't know about you, um, but one of the things that has, has just really stuck out to me um, in a significant way, especially over the last number of months as we've kind of journeyed through the center of Luke, the middle of Luke, is, is Jesus' teaching on what it really truly means to be his disciple, the radical call of the gospel. And, uh, and so Jesus is going to continue in that vein. He's going to speak, uh, speak to an issue that I think we are kind of as human beings inherently interested in, and that is the issue of how this whole thing ends, the end of our lives. And there's something that is stamped on our hearts that causes us to, to question things like death and the end of the world. That's part of how God wired us. And so Jesus is going to speak to that. He's going to speak particularly about his second coming. But there's, it's interesting if you think about it. It seems like every few years there's kind of this ramp up or this kind of excitement or enthusiasm over the, the new somebody who thinks that they have figured out when Jesus is going to return. A couple of years ago, probably we would remember the most famous one recently, Harold Camping. Uh, he originally said he knew when Jesus was going to return in 1994, and that didn't happen, and then readjusted some things and squinted a little harder at the Hebrew or something and figured out that it was going to be 2011, and that didn't happen. Um, and, and so he, he unfortunately has passed at this point. But um, then the year later, the Mayans, even though they're not around uh, much anymore. They, they burst onto the scene in 2012 because of their calendar. And, and even this week, I um, just happened across this article uh, from, what's this, the UK Sun. It says, Apocalypse Now, world predicted to end in 2017 thanks to a total solar eclipse hitting America and the UK. A group of hardcore Christians has claimed a solar eclipse due to hit the UK and America next year will bring about an apocalypse. So it's something uh, that, number one, for people who are not maybe followers of Christ, not Christians, is one of the reasons that they um, might think we're all a little crazy. And uh, sometimes I have a tendency to, to agree with them. But the, the truth of the matter is we're interested in these things. We think about these things. There's something in us that, that thinks about eternity. And so like I said this morning, we're going to take a look at, at, at what Jesus told us about his ultimate return. And I will personally guarantee you that by the end of the morning, I will tell you when Jesus will return. <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. Uh, so Luke 17 We're going to start in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. But don't worry, because one day I will raise up my servant, Tim LaHaye, and he will write the Left Behind series. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's not what he said. Uh, Verse 21. Nor... Will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So what is Jesus saying here, in the midst of you? The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Well, who is in the midst of them? He's speaking to the Pharisees. Who and what is in the midst of them? He's referring to himself. He's saying that when the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, the king is the one who brings the kingdom. 
The kingdom of God comes with the king. And he's saying, I am the essence of the kingdom. See, they were looking, the Pharisees, for uh, something spectacular, something coming in the clouds, something uh, cosmic in, in scale. And Jesus, uh, while he acknowledges that that is going to come, it, it points them to the fact that, no, the kingdom is here. There will be a day, and Jesus is going to speak about it even in this text, where, where all of that does take place, the final consummation of the kingdom. But what Jesus says is that the kingdom, Jesus doesn't deny that those things are happening, but he's saying, guys, you're missing the point. The point is, is that the kingdom is present with the king, and it's already in your midst. The king is already here. And and he says, I am the walking, living, breathing, speaking manifestation of the kingdom of God in front of you right here today. Now, there are certain dimensions of the kingdom which are still awaiting fulfillment in the future, but in him you get the beginning of it. You see, the kingdom works on this principle that, that many of us maybe have heard of before called the already not yet principle, the already not yet. And um, that's not just something for seminary students to know. That's something that is really important for all of us to understand because there is this dimension of God's kingdom that is here and now, that is a reality for us. And there is another dimension that is not yet a reality, but it will be one day when Jesus returns. And so people who are followers of Jesus Christ, they live in this already and this not yet dimension. Many of you know uh, Brandon Arnold. He's uh, the junior high director at the Whittier Hills campus, and he was teaching um, a series on the kingdom with his junior hires. And so he's trying to think, how do you explain this already and not yet? And I think he came up with a really helpful illustration, at least I think so. He, he said, you know when you go to download an app on your phone, and um, you, uh, if you're like me, you'll look and see, is there, a, is there a free version of the app and a paid version of the app? Well, if you're like me, you'll, you'll download the free version of the app. And, and what's the deal with the free version? It has, um, it is the app in essence, and it is, um, there's no mistaking that, but it has certain functions that um, aren't available yet until you get to the paid app. And it has these pesky advertisements that continue to pop up. And he said, the life in the kingdom right now is like a free app. But Jesus paid the price for the paid app. And so one day we will experience life without those pesky uh, things popping up. And I thought that was really, that was funny and helpful. So when Jesus walked the earth, he said that he came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And he wanted to show people what what God's ultimate kingdom would look like one day. And one of the ways that he did that was by performing miracles. And so what Jesus did through his miracles was he revealed um, the, the nature of salvation that he came to offer and the type of kingdom that he was announcing. But those same miracles had implications for us right now at this moment. So, for example, he healed the lame. He opened blind eyes. He raised the dead. He, he, he did all of these incredible things. What do these things show you? Well, they show you that in his kingdom one day there would be no more blindness and no sickness and no more death. He fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish and there was 12 baskets of food left over. 
What does this show you? It shows us that in one day in his kingdom, there will be no hunger. But it also shows you that for right now, people who feast on Jesus have a never-ending supply of the bread of life in their souls. So there's this dimension of the miracle that is pointing to the not yet, that one day we'll experience in fullness when Christ returns, but there's also this dimension that is available for us right now. Contrary to what some people will tell you, that that Jesus came and from that point on, he would heal every sickness and every disease and every malady if you just named it and claimed it. That's not what Jesus came to do. He is going to do that one day. In fact, you don't have to name it and claim it. He will just have healed everything and wiped away every tear and disease and sickness will be no more. That's in his coming kingdom. But right now, he does that in our hearts. And so some of you, uh, some of you might remember a woman by the name, well, she's still alive, Johnny Erickson Tata, and uh, she is one of my wife's kind of faith heroes. And so Johnny Erickson Tata in 1976 was a teenager, and she had this um, terrible diving accident that gave her uh, a spinal cord injury, left her paralyzed kind of from the midsection on down. And, um, and so she says in her autobiography, which I'd encourage you to read if you have the chance, about how God used this accident to awaken her and draw her back to himself. And so what she said in her book was that she went to this pretty traditional church growing up, and there was a lot of um, kneeling during their services. And she always kind of went through the motions and never really took it seriously. But after her accident and God had drawn her back to himself, she said she went to church one Sunday morning and the minister asked everyone to kneel. And she said, for the first time in my life, I wanted to kneel. I wanted to be on my knees in front of Jesus to show him my appreciation. And she said, then it hit me. Never in my life would I be able to kneel before Jesus. She says, I was overwhelmed with a sense of regret that before when I had knelt, I had not meant it. And now that I wanted to kneel, my knees would no longer do it. And then she writes, I remember the king, I remembered the kingdom resurrection Just before the party gets going in heaven, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on my resurrected legs is to drop on my grateful, glorified knees to kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to be on my feet dancing. Can you imagine the hope, she writes, that this gives someone with a permanent spinal cord injury? Can you imagine the hope that this gives to even the one who is manic depressive? Only in the gospel of Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope to live. Her legs are still crippled and they're not yet healed, but her soul is already leaping and dancing. Look at verse 22. So now Jesus is turning to his disciples. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now, Jesus is kind of switching gears. And he's beginning to speak to his disciples about this final coming of the Messiah, the day of the Son of Man, the day of the Lord. And when, and when Jesus finally does come in, in this way that we often think of when, when Jesus finally returns, um, he, he seems to have a very clear understanding that in between the time that he walked on the earth and when he returned again, that there would be a lot of claims 
that this was happening, that, that the Messiah had returned. Religious leaders will do this all the time. The new Messiah is here. His name is Muhammad. The new Messiah is here. His name is Joseph Smith. The new Messiah is here. His name is David Koresh, and on and on and on. His words to us are categorically, do not believe them. Do not follow them. My coming will not be a movement that you should have to wonder if you need to join. You will not need to wonder. See, the real coming of the kingdom, the real king, there are, I want to give us four adjectives that help us to, to understand or describe his coming this morning. I think they're all in this passage here. Uh, the, first, the first thing that describes Jesus' coming that, that we need to know is that it's sudden. It says that here, right? It says, it says in uh, verse 24, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day Jesus' coming is, is going to be like lightning, no advanced warning. You can't plan on lightning. You don't know when or where it's going to strike. It is sudden. Another word that, that we can use to describe this is unmistakable. Okay, We're not going to be able to mistake it. It's going to be so obvious. Imagine if you went home today and um, you're having lunch with your family. And there was a knock on your front door and you open the door and there's someone there saying, Hey, I have a sign of, of Jesus' return. It's a three-headed donkey, and I've been growing it in my yard in Brea. Well, what would you have to do at that point? You'd have to put the family in the car and drive over to Brea and check out this three-headed donkey and discern if this is really true. Jesus says, no, it's not going to be like that. It's unmistakable. You're not going to be able to miss it. If lightning, if we're standing outside, is flashing in, in Brea, all of us would see it, and not just us, but everyone else around. It's unmistakable and we, we would not be able to mistake. It would be public and it will be big is what he is saying. The point is that this is not a secret movement that you might miss out on. Right? Jesus, uh, Jesus says it's going to be unmistakable. And he's going to continue here. Look at verse 25. He says, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So this was the mystery that everybody tripped over in Jesus' day because before he could bring the kingdom, the king had to die. In order to bring peace, in order to bring the peace of God on earth, he had to first bring, the, uh, bring us to peace with God. And the way that he would do that would be by suffering and dying. He would take the penalty of our sins upon himself on the cross. The wrath of God would be poured out on him and he would die so that he could remove that penalty and give us new hearts with new desires to be at peace with God. But nobody got this in Jesus' day. Nobody understood the extent of the, the wickedness of their hearts. That it wasn't just an external purity issue. It was a, a, an issue lodged deep within the heart. An issue that only Jesus could take care of. And so verse 26 says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So he's continuing to refer to this final day, this return of Jesus. And so the third adjective that we use to describe the final coming of the kingdom is that it is unexpected. So Jesus is comparing his ultimate return to this cataclysmic flood of Noah. Jesus is reminding them of what the people in Noah's day were, were like, where people were simply carrying on business as usual. The story in Genesis 7 tells us that at one point, 
before the first drop of rain ever fell, God tells Noah, okay, Noah, it's time. You and your family, you need to get into the ark. And, and they go in with all of the animals, and God himself closes the door, and then they wait. And they wait, and they wait. For seven days, they wait. Imagine, imagine the doubt that may have come during that time. But then all of a sudden, it says that it began to rain. If you read the text, it, it wasn't gradual by any means. The floodgates opened up, the skies cracked open, and before the first drop of rain hit the head of the men and women walking on earth at that time, it was entirely too late. They were swept away. And he said, that's how the the coming of the king is going to be. You don't get any advanced warning. It's unexpected. Jesus says in other places, you don't get to know the day or the hour. Not even the angels know the day or the hour. But Jesus is calling you and I to a faithful readiness. Uh, He's reminding us how urgent the call is in light of the unmistakable suddenness of the day of the Son of Man. Continue on here in verse 28. And he says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So it's the same thing here. What strikes me in, in these verses is just how normal life was when, when the judgment came, right? And it, and it sweeps in the way. The imminence of the coming judgment was totally out of their mind, just completely out of their mind. And I was thinking this week, could that be the same for us? That the imminence of Christ's return could, because of the, the, hum, the ho-hum, the humdrum or whatever of life, could it just be completely out of our minds? That the judgment of God seems so far outside the specter of normal human um, kind of interaction that we just simply don't comprehend the reality that there is a real heaven and a real hell and that when somebody closes their eyes in death, they either awaken to eternal bliss or in the presence of God, or eternal punishment. It just seems so far out of the specter of normal human um, life that I I wonder if we just uh, unintentionally scoff at it, or it feels so real. And Jesus says, but listen, it, it was unreal to them too. But the fact that they didn't perceive it didn't mean that it wasn't real. The other dimension that we see in these verses here is that they just, I think, got busy doing what they thought were more pressing things in their life, what they ended up giving more weight to, eating and drinking and marriage. Are any of those things bad things? Not at all. Those are, those are good things. It just, it's just that it kept them from focusing on the most weighty of things, giving any weight to what God had said, that what God had said was most important. One pastor I heard said it this way, more people miss the kingdom of God um, through neglecting it than through rejecting it. And perhaps we've seen that to be true. I don't know if that's been maybe your experience with in your own life or in, in the lives of your loved ones. They just never give it the weight that it really deserves. They think that uh, the, the, the normal things in life tend to just kind of take up that slack and we never give it the weight that it really deserves. But if, if you think about it, the reality is there's one thing that everyone would agree on in this life and is that everyone dies. It is the one thing that we know for certain. And if you think about it, it makes no sense to, to not think about that reality and about what, uh, what life after death may look like. There's a 17th century uh, philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal. 
And he wrote this book. Um, and in this book, um, he talks about how, how to start seeing life in the right perspective or how learning how to see r- life in the right perspectives. And, and, and he says in this book, it doesn't make any sense whether you believe in God or not to not pay any attention to the reality that death is coming for every single one of us. So he illustrates it with this story that I think is helpful. He says, imagine that you're in this gigantic room with a ton of other people. And, um, the, you know, the room is nice and beautiful and the people are, um, are nice to chat with and, and, and you're engaging with them. And all of a sudden, this, this uh, savage, crazy beast bursts into the room and seemingly randomly grabs someone, mauls them to death, and then drags their corpse out of the room. And then a couple minutes later, it does it again. And then a couple minutes later, it does it again, and, and, and you realize fairly quickly that this is what's going to happen, that this beast is going to come in and systematically um, annihilate every single person in this room. And then imagine that your response is to simply turn around and to just begin to engage in conversation with someone and try to enjoy your day in this room. How crazy would that be? This beast, uh, Pascal says, is, is your death. We know that death is coming, why would we not pay attention to the one thing that is true of life? And especially if what the Bible says is true about life, do we understand that these things, these questions are more weighty than any other questions than we can be asking? Look at verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop With his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. So Jesus tells his disciples to do the opposite of what the people of Noah's day did. He said, Live every second of your lives with the reality of the coming kingdom in mind. Live your life with with the imminence of my second coming pressing in on your heart because it could break through at any moment. And so the fourth word that we would use to describe Jesus' coming would be imminent. I love that word, imminent. You should be ready at any moment. And then he's also saying here that your life, as a result of that, should be light and mobile, focused on eternity and not attached to the trappings of this world in the here and now. I want to make a kind of a dramatic statement, but it's one that I really truly believe here, and and it's this. If the return of Jesus is not imminent in our minds, then our attitude toward everything in this life will be wrong. If the return of Jesus is not imminent in our minds, then our attitude toward everything in this life will be wrong. In every book of the New Testament, we see mention, made mention of Jesus' imminent return. In every one of Paul's major moral commands, he is going to tie that to the reality that, hey, guys, Jesus is coming back. It means you live your life differently. One of, one of my favorite, I'll read it for you just really quickly, 1 Corinthians 7. This is a good example of this where Paul, um, he speaks directly to this issue. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 29. He says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. 
Paul, what on earth do you mean? For those of us who have wives, live like we do not. What is Paul saying here? I think what he's saying is that whatever situation that you are in right now, remember and realize how temporary it is. Whatever situation that you're in right now, we need to realize how temporary it is because people, we as a people, tend to treat our situations in life like they are so final. We get one shot down here to do it right. One shot so you better get all that you can. One shot to experience all of the beauties of the world and everything that this world has to offer. And so we make lists and we go after these things. If I don't do this now, I'm never going to be able to do it again. And I think we have this mentality sometimes, if we're honest, because we've, we've completely missed the reality of what this life to come is going to look like. We've missed what the Bible teaches us about um, what life is like in God's kingdom. That life in God's kingdom is not going to be some ethereal experience where we're sitting in diapers on clouds and you know, drinking Kool-Aid and strumming harps. That is not the picture that we get. We, we remember what Jesus' miracles pointed us to. That the way that the kingdom was going to be, that we are going to experience creation as it was meant to be experienced. We're not going to be less alive. We're going to be far more alive. And so what Paul says here is that whatever you miss out here is ultimately insignificant because the real version of it you get in eternity. I don't know about you, but this helps me to reconcile how I view my life, helps me to recalibrate how I view my life. Those times where I'm feeling depressed or or really down because life isn't going the way that I want it to. Paul says that for the believer in Christ, this isn't your final situation. We have real true hope about the inbreaking power of Jesus Christ in the here and now. That is for certain. And, and Jesus heals, and he does incredible things, and we can have real hope. But our ultimate hope comes when Christ returns again. Our ultimate hope for all things being restored and everything that is sad becoming untrue. You see, when you and I view Christ's return as imminent, when that is real to you, you won't look wistfully at the things of this world and long for them or become bitter because you've missed them. You know, I think that's one of the things that really keeps us from being able to sacrifice and live lives, sacrificial lives as disciples in, in God's kingdom is we don't, get, we don't get this reality. We think that if we miss it now, we lose it forever. If we don't get it right now, we'll, we'll miss out on it. You know, one of the things I was thinking about this week is when I was, um, when I was young, in elementary school, even as a young teenager, the thing that I wanted to do more than anything else in life was climb Mount Everest. And um, I read uh, all the books and watched the movies, and it, was, and it was almost kind of an obsession. And I would dream about myself climbing Mount Everest. And, um, you know, the reality is it's, you know, cost $100,000. And these days I'm getting a little fluffy around here, so me and no oxygen is uh, probably not a good mix. But, but, you know, I was thinking this week that um, if... Jesus' resurrected body was recognizable and you could touch it, you could see it, you could eat it, but it was like supercharged so it could walk through walls and suddenly appear and disappear. What, was, what is life going to look like in the new heaven and the new earth? I mean, who wants to climb Mount Everest with me? No? Oh, yes. Okay, excellent. We're climbing Mount Everest in the new heaven and the new earth, right? What is on your list of things that you want to do before you die? 
I want to be married. I want to have kids. I want to own a home. I want to visit this place or that place. I want to skydive. I want to run with the bulls. I want to throw eggs at Justin Bieber. I don't know what it is. (laughs) Whatever it is on your list, listen, could you and I be content to make eternity our obsession and not be obsessed with, with what we are missing out now because you know that in the kingdom, everything that you miss out on now is not simply made up for by um, having treasure or rewards in heaven, but you will actually get to experience the fullness of it in God's kingdom. In Christ, the believer has everything. You don't have to obsess about it now. The only thing on your bucket list, the only thing, the one thing that we will not be able to do into eternity is to partner with the Spirit of God, to come alongside and to help bring men and women to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the one thing that we will not do. So we, we get, I get one shot at my family in this life. We get one shot at the community. We get one shot at the unreached people groups in this world. The one thing that we cannot do for all eternity. So doesn't it make much more sense for men and women who understand this reality to pour out their life and their resources and their time to make much of that in this world. To not be obsessed to try and continue to obtain, but to use the things that God has given us to bless others, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him. Pour them out for the one thing that we can never do throughout all of eternity. I'll get to experience all the glories of creation one day. So I don't want to be obsessed with the things that I'm missing out on down here. Paul tells us that every single part of our lives must be read through this lens of the imminence of Jesus' return. And so there's a bunch of things that, that, um, ramifications of that, that I would love to talk about. But I'm just going to talk about one of them really quickly because it's common to the human experience. Everyone experiences it, and it's pain. Jesus does not say to your pain, it is not real. In fact, he says it is very real. Jesus experienced pain deeper than any of us have ever experienced it because he was more human than any of us. He does not say to your pain, your pain is not real. He says, in fact, it is very real. He says to us in John chapter 16, this is interesting, he compares earthly pain to labor pains. He says, you need to see your pain now in light of eternity. And pain now is to eternity what labor pains are to birth. Labor pains are real. I know I'm walking on thin ice here, but (laughs) Jesus said it first. So I don't know that personally, but I've watched my wife go through this a number of times, and they seem very real to me, very painful. I did not know a human woman could squeeze a hand that hard. But what is so interesting for those of you who have experienced that, the transformation from um, pain and seemingly chaos to in an instant peace and calm when that baby is taken and laid on the mother's chest, it's as if no one else is in the room. And that is the picture that God gives us about how we think through pain in this life. That it doesn't mean that pain isn't existent, it doesn't mean that it's real, but that Jesus does have power to heal in this life, and that ultimately everything that is sad will become untrue one day when he returns. We can have real hope now, though, because 
We serve Jesus who experienced that pain with us, and he is with us. So Jesus says that your pain is very real, but when you look at it through the lens of eternity, you can begin to see how temporary it is. Look at, look at verse 32. Jesus is going to begin to give us a couple of warnings here as we start to close. He says in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. So who was Lot's wife? You remember the story. You can read it in Genesis 19. Fire and sulfur from heaven destroying Sodom. Um, and as Lot and his family are fleeing Sodom, Lot's wife turns and she looks back. And what happens? She turns into a pillar of salt. That's right. What was she doing? Was she, did she think she left the oven on? or No, right? Evidently, she was looking wistfully back and hoping or longing for some of the things that she had back, back there, longing for that life. And what happened to her? She turned into a pillar of salt. And it's a stark warning about being tied to the things of this world. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, wealth has a way of knitting a man's heart to this world. And it's so true. Right? It creates a spiritual inability for you and I to really live your life as a disciple of Jesus, being tied to this world. Look at the next warning in verse 33. Whoever speak, or excuse me, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. The one who builds up their life on this earth will lose their life, will lose it all. Why? Because you can't take it with you. But the one who angles all of their life and everything they do towards eternity gets to keep it. So think about, think about money. That's just a helpful example. You can't take any of it with you. Right? You, can't, you can spend your life trying to amass it, and the great irony is that the more you have, the more that you focus on amassing it, the, the more inward your soul will turn and the, uh, and the more atrophied you will become. But if you can take your eyes off of these things and begin to leverage the, the resources that God has given you for his glory in the kingdom, then your life will become this life of like a fountain of fresh water. So I want, to pull, I want to pull everything together for us this morning to help us to think about what are, what are qualities that Jesus wants his disciples to live with in light of his imminent return. And I think the first quality that he's calling us to live with is readiness. So when we come to see Jesus' return as sudden, unmistakable, unexpected, and imminent, it changes the posture of our souls. It changes the trajectory of our, our lives. He might come today. It also means that when we understand that, then it changes the way we live. So we live light and unencumbered lives. We can be mobile. I mean, think of it this way. I think it was John Piper who gave this example. You walk into a, a department store and, um, and you see all of these things that you really like you know in your wallet you have no money. But you continue to walk through the store and you pick out everything that you like and you're holding it in your hands like this and you're walking through the store. How silly is that knowing that before you have to walk out of the store, you have to drop all of those things in a pile before you leave. Can you take anything with you? No, you cannot. If we understand this reality, it is actually more enjoyable to experience life unencumbered uh, with all of this stuff. And then what happens is the things that God does bless you with, he gives good gifts, 
you get to use to glorify him for, for your enjoyment, for the enjoyment of others, and you live this unencumbered, light, mobile life in light of the imminence of Christ's return. That's the first quality I think he calls us to live. The second is patience. Patience means delayed gratification. It means working faithfully even when you can't feel the outcome. So this is where I think, if we're honest, most of us falter. I know I do. Most of us like immediate results to our obedience, don't we? We may not say it, but we think it, right? So, well, I've started to become the husband that, I, that God is calling me to be. So my wife should just stop nagging me and rub my feet every night, right? And that's not happening for some reason. What's up with that, God? Or, you know, I've started tithing. And, and you know, I tithed for the last couple months. And that, look, I just bounced a check. What's up with that, God? Why aren't you rewarding me for that? And, and, I, and so we struggle with this. Listen, if you and I are going to walk with Jesus, we are going to have to live with an expectant patience because there will be so much in this life that will ultimately be left unfulfilled and unrewarded until we ultimately see Christ again. And if we can't live with this kind of patience and this delayed gratification with faithful obedience, where we might not see a lot of reward this, ti- this side of eternity, it's going to be hard to persevere. It's going to be hard to press through challenging times. It's going to be hard to trust that God is good. See, the less real His coming is to you, the more obsessed you are with the here and now, the more you succumb to temptations. The more you engage in materialism, the more you focus on things like suffering in your life and things, things that you don't have. Expectation of the imminent return of Jesus is necessary for living a joy-filled, fulfilling life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I think that this is largely absent from the church a lot. I think it's probably explainable as a reaction against the goofy end times prophecy and that kind of thing. But as I said before, literally every book of the New Testament talks about the return of Jesus Christ and its imminence to us. The last words, the book of Revelation, you know what they are? The last words of the last book in the New Testament. Surely I am coming quickly. And then John's reply, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The last words of the Bible are a prayer with eyes and face lifted up to heaven saying, Amen, come, Lord Jesus, come. See, here's the problem with um, these August 21st people. Nothing against them personally, but here's the problem, is that they think they've got four months to figure it out or to mess around. We're supposed to think that it might happen before I finish speaking today. Are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to walk into eternity? He gives us one last warning. Look at verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. What's his point here? It's very important. Family relationships won't save you. Being a part of the right church won't save you. There's a couple in bed, one taken and one is left. Friends won't save you. Two women grinding wheat 
One was taken, one was left. The divisions in God's kingdom are not between nations. It's not between people inside the church and outside of the church. The division is within families, within groups of friends, in bedrooms, in dorm rooms, perhaps in this room. There will be two at Redemption Hill Church. One will be taken, one will be left. Can you say this morning, amen, come Lord Jesus, come. Are you ready to meet with God? There is no other more important question in this life. And for the Christian, are you living your life light and mobile, focused on eternity? Is that the lens that you view life through? That's his point. He could come today. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would make this real to us. Lord, there may be people in this very room who still need to repent and trust you as their Savior. In fact, I'll say this right now. If if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you can do that today. It is in your heart. There's no magic words. But you can say in your heart something like this, Jesus, I surrender my life to you, all of me, completely. Jesus, I receive your offer to save me, to forgive me for my sins. Would you wash them away with your blood? Would you make me your child? If you have never prayed that before, if you've never meant that in your heart, you can do that today, and we would love to talk with you about that. Father, please allow us to live with the imminence of your return heavy on our minds and very present in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.